All right, welcome, welcome to our show. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna pull back the curtain another way, and tell you that uh, it's actually Wednesday when we're talking about this, but the Mueller hearings are taking place, so we can't do this on the air. So that's why you're hearing it on Thursday, assuming you're hearing it on, hearing it on Thursday. Um, so what is this? What is the this I'm talking about? Well, that's another inter- interesting question because like, we had sort of a, a conceptual breakdown in the last 24 hours where we weren't even 100% sure what this show is about. But we know it's about writing. It's about writers. It's about fiction. Uh, and it's, I think, about, well, let me put it to you this way in a way that uh, might resonate with you. There might be one book. You've got a book a novel that you've read more than once, and, and maybe you've read it enough times so that it's kind of acquired a physicality a little bit different from the books in your collection, right? It's more dog-eared, and there's kind of a big cracky little crease running down the front cover, uh, and there's, you know, maybe if, you, if I were to just throw it on the ground, it would open to a certain page that you've read like a whole bunch of extra times. There are books like that for most of us, and, and I think that's where we're going to begin anyway. These books that provide us a kind of guidance, or at least we think that that's what's happening, that the book is telling us something important, something so important we have to keep going back to read it, to read it again. Uh, but we're going to go a lot of other places from there. Uh, I can say that I did a very unscientific social media poll, and um, for guys, uh, why chromosome types, Kurt Vonnegut uh, kind of leads the pack with that. If people feel that they've been handed a, a kind of a novelistic user's manual for life, uh, they think maybe it's a Vonnegut novel. Uh, I would say Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies and maybe in second place with dudes, with women. It's going to be Pride and Prejudice. I didn't heard from somebody who'd read it 15 times. Uh, maybe Middlemarch. Women, I don't know. Those are classier choices. Make what you want of that. All right. Let me introduce the guests. So the occasion for this conversation, I think, is a new book by our friend Steve Allman, uh, writer and author of 10 books of fiction and nonfiction, including Against Football and Candy Freak. His latest is William Stoner and The Battle for the Inner Life. And Steve will be at uh, Real Artways tonight, assuming it's Thursday when you're listening to me, Thursday, July 25th, if that is the case. Toddle on over to Real Artways in Hartford at 730 for an event called Get Stonered, How Our Favorite novel, Novels Help Us Find Ourselves. In studio with me is also a very good friend, Julia Pistel, freelance writer, comedian, managing director at CT Improv, corrector of syllable series, host of Literary Disco, a podcast about books and writing. But your uh, introduction is getting, it's like getting Carolyn Payne long. We've got to like, cut some things Yeah, got to cut some stuff. Well, you, were the, you also directed Piranha 3, and we don't mention that anymore, all right? Irrelevant. So, yeah, no, it's just drop it out of your, your CV. Uh, also joining us, another guy who's been on our show uh, a time or two before, Joseph Luzzi, former, uh, excuse me, writer and author of the memoir In a Dark Wood, what Dante taught me about, uh, let me, I'm not doing that title very well. I'm going to start all over again. Writer and author of the memoir In a Dark Wood, what Dante taught me about grief, healing, and the mysteries of love. That's why we had him on before. He's the author of two other books, most recently My Two Italys. He's a professor of comparative literature at Bard. Uh, All right, so enough with introductions. Um, Steve, I'm going to begin with you because you're kind of the reason we're here. In fact, your book kind of simulates the physicality I was describing before. They kind of uh, antiqued the cover of your book uh, to make it look like something that had been uh, dog-eared and read and creased and thrown on the floor and stuff like that. Uh, it is a book about your relationship with this one particular novel, Stoner, which 
is not an early Ethan Hawke novel and doesn't have anything to do with pot or anything <laughs> right. like that. It's, you know, it, it's, well, maybe you should just introduce us to Stoner anyway. Sure. Yeah. Much to my disappointment because this book was pressed on me when I was 28 years old at the end of a long, drunken, probably stoned party. And I thought, great, a novel that is, I am the key demographic. I smoke pot all the time. This is going to be awesome. And I went, ran back. I had just started graduate school, ran back to my little septic apartment and sat down and read it in one sitting, weeping inconsolably and confusingly the whole time. And it was not at all. It was pretty much the opposite of drug-fueled depravity. It's this quiet story of a, of a, of a guy who leads by all all external accounts, a totally uneventful life, you know, becomes part of the academy, teaches not particularly memorably, has a terrible marriage, a brief affair, and then he falls ill and dies. And it's essentially a life, and it announces this in the first paragraph, crazily enough, about a totally forgotten person. And so the question then becomes, well, so what makes it so memorable? Why did I keep reading it? Why could I not stop reading it? Why have I picked it up 25 times since that first reading. And the answer that I've come to after all these years is that Stoner is, for me, what I think favorite novels are for people, which is a manual for living. We go there originally to be enchanted and transported and to admire the prose, but we're actually going there again and again because we want to come to know ourselves. That's what literature is about. It's, that's what it exists for. And each time I read it, it's a different book because I'm a different person. You know, first time I read it, it was the book about becoming inspired by literature. And then after I'd been engaged in some ridiculous feuds that characterize most people's 20s and 30s, it was a book about conflict and how we consciously and unconsciously engineer it, especially when we're trying to avoid conflict. And then when I was an adjunct professor of bitterness running around Boston teaching all these disinterested, probably stoned undergraduates, it was a book about the sacred calling of teaching and trying to light the flame of people's souls inside these classrooms. And then once I got married, it was a book about marriage and the rigors of that process. Even the best marriages bring out the monstrous parts of us. And then it became apparent, and it was a book about parenthood. And as I've gotten older, it became a book about facing death and mortality and what our lives mean ultimately. And the only way that I've been able to really feel that consistently, or at least one of the most powerful ways, is by returning to this book. For me, Stoner is my lodestar. For my wife, it's Little Women. She would have filled out your survey and said, Little Women is the book that I read every winter when I was you know, a teenager wishing to be in a compassionate matriarchal family because she was in a brutal patriarchal family. And now at 45, it's a very different book for her. It's a book about the struggle that women face trying to lead the life that they want to lead in a culture that's essentially send her back, lock her up, that's still criminalizing female volition and ambition. And everybody has their own version of this book that well, they, has essentially saved their lives. Let's go to our panelists and see if they do have their own version. First of all, one of the things, Julia, that I wrote down is we're getting ready for this this uh, thing I wrote down in the notes. Is it a question about what novels are supposed to do, what fiction is supposed to do? For Steve, it is a way to know oneself and to know oneself at different junctures of life. I'm not sure that everybody uses fiction that way, though. And do you use novels to know yourself or to know something else? I use novels, use is even an interesting word, but right. I use novels to be transported into another consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I want to turn off my brain and completely submerge myself. You know, it's like if you don't read fiction, you're swimming without ever dunking your head in the water, right? So 
when I read fiction, I just think I hope against hope that some voice will transport me into someone else's mind, not necessarily, you know, their body or whatever, but their mind. And so I think great novels almost always do that. You are, through whatever perspective, grabbing onto somebody else's thoughts and hopes and feelings and dreams. You just reread The Great Gatsby for I don't know how many of time. Sure. Maybe you don't either. But So t- tell me about that experience. Why make that choice? There's a mil- million new novels out there that you could read. There's a billion old novels out there that you could read. <laughs> Why did you read Great, Great, Great Gatsby again and what happened when you did? So I, like Steve, I am aware that You know, basically, I don't think anyone should say they have a favorite book unless they've read it within the last decade, because (laughs) if you come back to it, it it is going to feel like a completely different book. Um, So I hadn't read Gatsby in a long time, and um, it was suggested to read it for our podcast. But I I had actually um, my previous reading was I had read it out loud um, just for fun. And it was just wonderful to be transported again by the language and to revisit the characters again. And then, of course, when you, you're reading You should say you, you were asked by the Connecticut Transit Bus Company to stop doing that. <laughs> no. I was Come. sadly a pedestrian. Oh, okay. You were just in your house reading it out loud? Well, the story is that I, I was against seeing the Leo DiCaprio version of it. And then I suddenly realized I did want to see it and wanted my boyfriend to come with me, but I didn't think he should be allowed to see it unless he had read the book. So I was like, I'm going to read you the book. And I knew it only took a few hours. So I went for it. Um, But I rereading is very special to me because when I think about the length of my life and my own mortality, I think, why am I going to waste my time on a crappy book or a book I know is, you know, I've read the first 30 pages and I'm not feeling it. Like, why not go back to a book that made me feel something and try to feel that way again or discover a new depth of feeling? So uh, how is this all uh, resonating with you, uh, Joseph? Uh, What are you thinking about right now? First, uh, thank you for, I I remember very well our conversation on Dante a couple years ago, which was fantastic. And it's great to meet uh, Stephen and Julia. Stephen, I share your love for Stoner. Uh, It was a book that I found kind of came across uh, randomly, haphazardly, but it's it's a perfect novel. It's so exquisitely written. And as a professor, the you know, his description of academic life is just um, so spot on and touching. So I can't wait to read your book. And um, Julia, any podcast that's called Literary Disco has to be worth listening to. Um, so, um, you know, the question of, of books returning to books, I think, is one that I've lived with in that I find it incredible that you can read a book the same book over and over again, and it always means something different. As a literary scholar, you think of the text, you know, just the words on the page, they don't change at all. And yet the meanings change over time. It's kind of a, it's, you know, it's a magical um, alchemy. The word that, the book that I always think of is Dante. Um, There's a line in, I think it's uh, in in Moby Dick, where Ishmael says something like, you know, the whale boat was my Harvard and my Yale College or or vice versa. And I definitely feel that way about Dante's Divine Comedy because it's a work that I had studied. I'd read as an undergraduate. I actually studied in graduate school, became a professor, taught it, wrote footnoted essays on it. And then, you know, when I faced a great personal tragedy, the the death of my wife who was pregnant um, and 
the birth of our child shortly before that and kind of faced being a father and a widower at the same time, I turned to Dante. And I think that these great the books in our lives find us as much as we find them. You know, I had written about it in so many different ways. I always thought I'd write the typical academic scholarly study of it. And yet I ended up writing a book that was deeply personal. And I still approached it with all the kind of scientific um, <laughs> rigor that my literary training had taught me to. But it was just something that spoke to me in a way that I had never, a voice that I'd never heard before of any book. You know, Dante's struggles with his exile, with, uh, you know, writing this book over in the most adverse conditions had nothing to do, of course, with me rebuilding my life um, with a, with this small child and, you know, rebuilding my personal life as well. But somehow the, the message and the voice um, helped me get through it. And... You know, I can't think of, uh, you mentioned earlier about um, what we look for in novels, what we look for in books. I often think of, you know, if you look at social media, it's more of a mirror. It's our interests that are reflected back to us. But books, literature, it's to me, is more of a prism. You know, we look into it and it reflects us out into the world. And that's why I think it's such an incredible resource for, um, you know, the difficult challenges that we face in life. So I, I, well, I want to get back to something that's come up here a, a couple of times, uh, and that is that notion of urging another person to read a book. So this comes up a lot, in, Steve, in, in your book. We just heard about uh, Julia's deeply manipulative treatment of her husband, <laughs> or you might have been your boyfriend then, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you were subletting Greg's, uh, uh, Steve's uh, septic apartment, I think, <laughs> uh, at that time. So, um, but, but so there, and so a friend of mine from college, I was also polling people that I, I haven't talked to in a while or that I've known for a really long time. He told me in an email today that Stoner is the only book he has ever urged another person to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so can we talk about that urging thing, Steve? Because did you want to say something? I, yeah, I do because I just remembered something um, vital okay. to the show. So I also and you're love operating Stoner. on very little sleep. So if these <laughs> memories come up, you should just say. So I, I I also love Stoner, and I just remembered how I came to it, which mm-hmm. was I was living in New York and I was working right by Three Lives and Company, an amazing bookstore in the West Village. Um, and I decided that for a year I would only read books that were recommended to me by the booksellers there. Mm-hmm. And this one bookseller gave – she I would finish a book. I'd go in like a week later and I'd say, OK, what's next? And she recommended to me Stoner and like 30 other books that – all, it was the best year of reading of my life was just putting my reading life in someone else's hands. And her this was probably the first book she pressed into my hands. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, urging people to read Stoner. It happened to you. You've done it to other people. And yes. uh, my friend Scott is doing it with me now. It's a thing. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? This Because there's other books that you've probably read and quietly enjoyed that you don't feel the need to evangelize. Right. Well, Stoner is like, just to take that particular book, the reason that people get evangelical about it, it's like the Velvet Underground of novels, right? So if the Velvet Underground had 10,000 fans, they all started a band. Well, Stoner had like a thousand fans originally, but all of them were people who would write novels, go on to write novels or criticism. And that's partly just because of what it's about, a guy, a farm kid coming and finding literature in the academy and the life of the mind, it sort of rescues him. So you can see how that selects for people who are book geeks. 
But more broadly, here's the deal. A book is a huge investment of time and emotional energy. I think that's what Julia and Joseph are getting at. It's like you get emotionally involved, and it's unlike any other form of art because you have to collaborate. In fact, the reader does most of the imaginative heavy lifting when it's a novel. We have to translate these black specks into stories capable of generating rescue. It's kind of miraculous. Mm -hmm. And we're doing most of it. And our emotional lives are what are being activated in our imaginations. Julia said, you know, it's like swimming without going underwater. I would argue that's any deep reading experience is a kind of deeper living. You become aware of all the stuff that's swimming around inside you. And if social media is about putting your life on display, your inner life, reading is like turning inward and looking and examining your inner life, even if it's in fictional disguise. So people get worked up about it. And Stoner has this remarkable capacity to get inside of people because it is so unremitting in its examination of this one guy's life. And it dispenses with all our usual ideas of what's heroic, a great love or sleeping with lots of people or being a hero in war. It gets rid of that in the first paragraph. And you're left with what most people have all throughout their lives, which is a tumultuous inner life where they're constantly falling in love and having relationships explode in their face and trying to escape the sorrow of their childhood and all this big, heavy stuff that we carry around with us all the time but barely ever talk about. That's what literature is there to make you feel less alone with. So people, when they recommend a book, it means a lot to them. They don't want to pat on the head. They want to go all the way. And I think that's the feeling I have with Stoner, but I also have it with The Great Gatsby and Vonnegut's work, which I've written about at length, and The Catcher in the Rye. When I was a you know pimpled high school student and my English teacher started reading the first chapter, Catcher in the Rye, it was like my soul exploded. And I was like, you mean there is a place where the inside of me and what it sounds like like is actually represented and I can visit that place and keep those characters company. It was like an incredible relief. And that feeling of a desperation for connection is partly what the internet is constantly teasing at, but never really satisfying us with. And that's, I think, what literature does and why people get so worked up. And also, it's such an investment of time and energy that you really need a kind of guilt-based recommendation system. It's not enough just to say, hey, yeah, you should check out this show. It's pretty cool. It's on Netflix. You're asking somebody to sit down, take their shoes off. There'll probably be eight or ten visits, have some tea, and really immerse themselves in, in the precious commodity or resource, which is paying attention. Joseph, did you want to say something about evangelizing? Because if not, I've got a different thing to ask you about, too. Yeah, you know, as a professor of literature, I get asked this question all the time. And I I have the books that I love, and I I recommend them uh, emphatically. And, you know, oftentimes people come back, scratch their head and say, why did you recommend that one? (laughs) It didn't connect with it at all. There are other books that, you know, like The Great Gatsby that I— also a favorite of mine that I just know is is someone that something you can walk right into for most people and just love. So I kind of know the books that I can recommend safely and other ones that are more of a personal taste. So mm-hmm. what I try to do now is just try and keep people open to different kinds of reading experiences. I came up with this little thing that I, I wrote a piece about called the rule of fours, where I say, you know, becoming a reader, committing to reading doesn't mean uh, uh, cutting the, you know, just reading the classics and uh, letting go of the kind of books you love. I say, try and focus on four categories, commit to them four days a week for 45 minutes a time and let one of those categories be the books you love, you know, whether that's fantasy, science fiction, detective, uh, whatever it is that you should, readers need a home and you should feel at home with your books. The other 
two other categories are a contemporary writer, just try and see what's going on in the world of contemporary fiction, the new cultural voices today, and then also read nonfiction. Literature is not just the make-believe, it's also essays by Orwell, great historians, political commentators, that we should be open to that. And finally, I say, do keep yourself open. Let one of those books be a classic, you know, a book that you'd always wanted to get around to, whether it be Middlemarch or A Tale of Two Cities or Virginia Woolf or, you know, Wordsworth, W.B. Du Bois, a book that you know is going to take a little uh, elbow grease, you know, a book that um, I think, as Steve said, is going to take that commitment because a lot of books, and this is what I worry about as people look for that you know, quick hit on social media. It's not easy. <laughs> Some of these books are really demanding and require full attention. You can't multitask and especially those really complicated books. So by creating a kind of variety of reading, I, I hope that I can help readers find that sweet spot for them. All right. So you're urging a method. That's great. We have to take a quick break. All three of these wonderful guests are with us for the entirety of the show. So uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. And then, cover to cover, beginning to end, I want to go back and read it again. All right, uh, let me semi-reintroduce uh, the panel here. Steve Almond, uh, his latest book is William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. He's going to be at Real Artways. If you're listening on Thursday, he's going to be at Real Artways in Hartford tonight, July 25th, 7.30 p.m., uh, for an event called Get Stonered, How Our Favorite Novels Help Us Find Ourselves. Also in studio with me is Julia Pastel, a freelance writer, comedian, a managing director of CT Improv, host of Literary Disco, a podcast about books and writing. And also joining us is Joseph Luzzi, writer and author of the memoir In a Dark Wood, What Dante Taught Me About Grief, Healing, and the Mysteries of Love. He's the author of two other books, most recently, My to Italy's. He's a professor of comparative literature at Bart. It's summertime, and, and Julia, it does seem as though in the summer, you know, not that we have to read stupid books in the summer, but there's an, a summer reading experience, which whatever kind of book we choose, I, I would say it's qualitatively different from the rest of the year. I don't know. React. Okay. So, I mean, and I, I read Joseph wrote a great article on this, and I have a feel. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. But um, I think there's really two roads. One is the complete junk food experience. And right now I'm rereading Jurassic Park, and that is delight. It feels like a summer read. It does not right. feel like something in October I'm going to suddenly read Jurassic Park. You're um, not really discovering yourself in Jurassic Park. No. I, you know <laughs> – it's know, it's a lot of fun, yeah. uh, but you got it's a little a, velociraptor a in you. Guilty pleasure, um, and in that case, like geeking out on science stuff. Um, but the other way to go, and this was my experience, like as a teenager and in colleges, it is your chance to dig into the deepest, longest book that's been on your list and sit by the lake or whatever and knock out four or five hours at a time of reading. Um, and of course, if you're in the academic world, you're much more likely to do that. But I, I read Anna Karenina in a summer. So I remember when or whenever people say, you know, summer reading, I always think Anna Karenina, which I know is possibly not normal. But it's it's the time you have to immerse yourself and go at your own speed. Right. This summer I'm reading all 
43 Hardy Boys books. <laughs> um, just, yeah. The, the original one before the Russian bots started writing them. So, so, Joseph, you did write an article about summer reading. So, uh, you just gave us this uh, complex and somewhat daunting uh, four genre uh, prescription in the previous um, segment. Tell us about uh, your approach to summer reading. Colin, summer's when the real readers come out. Yeah. Uh, because I, th- I think in a way it's almost like, even for an, as an academic, you know, in the summer you can read what you want. You don't have to, you're not tied to the syllabus. And I think uh, for all people, it becomes a time if you're a reader deep down, you're like, okay, it's summer. Now I have a stretch of months or a couple weeks where I can really, you know, this make it my project. And I think that that makes us kind of... Um, reach, you know, uh, the books that we always wanted to read, the books that we dreamed of reading. Uh, Julia said she uh, knocked off Anna Karenina. I remember last summer I read Budenbrooks, this super long book about this German banking family. Um, I think it's just a time when we can experiment and we're reading almost becomes to a greater degree than it does in the rest of the year, just an end in itself. You can just kind of lose yourself uh, in the pages and it's, um, you know, that pure reading space. That's the way I always think of it. You know, Steve, I'm going to make an observation, which you can then ignore and talk about whatever you want to talk about. Or, or, you, can, or you can build Sounds on like what I say. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, or you can build on what I say. One of the things that always strikes me about summer reading is there's a kind of physicality that does go along with summer reading that's also different. And the example I always give, I read, I think it was back in the 90s, I was reading this really long book called The Quincunx by Charles Palliser, and it's this deeply eccentric attempt to recreate a Victorian novel, to write an original Victorian novel, but write it in 1990. And, and it as I was reading it, I was kind of like sweating all over it and getting, you know, probably suntan lotion all over it. And, you know, it became like a living thing. You know, it became, it became like the way French rea- relate to their cheese. You know, it was like, you know, dogs and cats had walked over it. And it was like all kind of starting to, you know, splay out a little bit from its binding. And it does seem that as though when we're reading in the summer, we're folding it into other activities. You know, we're at a lake, we're at a beach, we're staying up late at night. Uh, I, I remember uh, a novel came out by a guy I knew who was a teacher down at Norwich Free Academy. It was his first novel ever. And I, I took it and I was in an A-frame up in uh, Vermont on a really hot night. And I read it all the way through. I just didn't sleep. I finished it at dawn. Of course, it was She's Come Undone by Wally Lamb. But, right. um, you know, there's something about summer reading that y- it invites you maybe to be a little bit more excessive. Yeah. You know, I think actually just to mention Anna Karenina for a second, I think it's actually a great summer read for the simple reason that it has a line that describes exactly what you feel when you're on vacation, especially with extended family. It will be familiar to some readers since even if you only got the first sentence into Anna Karenina, here it is. All happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in a different way. Bing, 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 bing. That's how I feel in summer when I'm around my extended family, who I love, by which I mean, of course, that I loathe them. So, But I also think that there's a kind of like, I get the summer read thing. I think there's a, 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 a sort of false binary that gets set up, which is there's certain kinds of reading like Jurassic Park or sort of plot-driven thrillers that's junk food is the term Julia used. And she's right. There's kind of novels that are supposed to get you you're supposed to immerse yourself in a world where what really is important is the plot and who gets murdered, who escapes, does you know, does the dinosaur win in the end? I think that's the plot of Jurassic Park. But I actually feel like 
a really good literary novel is not like something that you have to, you know, sort of put your special reading glasses on and wander into the study and make sure that the sun isn't shining and the drapes are drawn. I think that's like something in American anti-intellectualism that says it couldn't possibly be something that is um, f- fun and uh, if it isn't somehow frivolous, that it couldn't possibly be that people could muster their attention to immerse themselves imaginatively in a fictional world because the sun is shining and we should all be out there frolicking, go outside and play. And I just find that attitude sort of like when I read Stoner, I could be anywhere and I'm in that world. And I get it that when it's summertime, there's more sort of, as you say, there's more suntan lotion and ice cream and, you know, there's there's pool water. And it is not always conducive to that kind of deep concentration. But I would argue that what's really threatening that kind of deep concentration is just the devices in our hands, which are actually distraction machines that are created to agitate us and to grab a little bit of our attention and make it harder for us to do the thing that you have to do to get involved with any kind of uh, literature of whatever sort, which is to just pay attention in a sustained way. So in a way, it's sort of like cell phones have done way more damage in all this technology than like whatever the vicissitudes of the weather are. And, and for that matter, when I read a great novel, I am like, it's the best thing that I'm doing. And it's the best part of me that's doing that thing. You know, there's, I don't know how to make the transition to this, but it's something I really want to talk about. Uh, so I'm just going to transition to it. So, um, you know, one of the things that becomes clear from uh, from your book, Steve, uh, is that John Williams, uh, the guy who wrote Stoner, um, although he later went on to, to, to write a book that won more acclaim and posthumously wound up getting published in Europe and there's like a million copies in print or something in Europe. But basically uh, he is, I think the New Yorker called him the, or the called Stoner the best novel you've never heard of. Uh, there's it mostly is a guy who labored in obscurity, at least compared to, you know, to Stephen King or or, right. or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, one of the things that always strikes me about this, too, is I, I've had the opportunity occasionally to meet the writers, the authors of books that I've read that have been very important to me, but but not like meeting Kurt Vonnegut, but I mean, meeting somebody more like John Williams. And I'm always aware that they, they're they like the guy who has the office down the hall at University of New Hampshire or something, and nobody else even like has read their books, like even on the faculty. <laughs> and there's like this way in which they've become incredibly powerful to us because of that immersion that you're describing, Steve. But then you meet them and you think, oh, wow, this guy is like, you know, right. he's not even as well off as I am, either psychologically or economically. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, thank you for describing my career, Colin. You did a very succinct job of it. And I'll also just mention, yeah, I'll mention parenthetically that um, a lot of the books we've talked about already, The Great Gatsby, Moby Dick, uh, you can throw in any of Emily Dickinson's poetry, they fall into that category of, you know, Melville went to his grave saying, I wrote the great American novel. Why did nobody read it? It was only 50 years later that it was rediscovered. And this is this gets back to, I'm sure Joseph's familiar with this um, Orwell quote, you know, only, the only true critic is time. Like what we're paying attention to 10 months from now or even, even 10 years from now is not what makes great literature. It's those books that say something. In Gatsby, it's about doomed love, right? In, in Moby Dick, it's about the, the, the allure 
of, of wounded male aggression. You know, it's saying something that reaches so deep into our common experience that people over the generation, or how about the Bible while we're there, that people over the generations continue to return there and find sort of the deepest part of their inner life exposed. So in a way, you have to separate what people are going to recognize during your lifetime, the desire to have people pay attention to you and your life. That's for social media, frankly. And I get it. It's a narcissistic allure that's that's in all of us. But when you're writing, at least for me, what I'm trying to do is figure out what's going on inside me, what kind of chaos is happening in there. And I recognize that probably at this moment in history, not a lot of people are going to find it. I'm trying to reach deeper, and I know the audience is automatically going to be much smaller, and I've sort of made my peace with that. Right. So, um, by the way, I think the Bible made it, its advance back right away. You know, <laughs> I, I think God was in royalties very early uh, on that book. But I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yes, uh, but he didn't get to choose the cover. Right. <laughs> big deal. But Joseph, I, I don't know if it's, you know, I, I even think of these people who are the so-called writer's writers. So that would be John Williams, author yeah. of Stoner, or James Salter, or I don't know why they're mm-hmm. all guys, but Wright Morris, uh, Richard Yates would be another example. But yeah. these are guys who, for the most part, you know— I I mean, uh, you know, if you were to visit them at their university thing, you know, somebody else would get, you want to go meet him? What do you want to meet him for? You know, I mean, they often, they, the, the magnitude that they have for us, the reader, can never be equaled in their life. Yeah, and this is a, a amazingly, a hugely fascinating question. I've researched it and written a little bit on it. That, you know, if you go back in history, even like Shakespeare, Voltaire called Shakespeare a drunken savage. You know, it's, like <laughs> the, the, it's almost impossible to correlate lifetime success and sales with what happens afterwards. It's just, it's, imp- you know, some of the greatest books, uh, Stephen mentioned, Great Gatsby, works like Madame Bovary, works that we celebrate now as, you know, the pinnacle of writing were, a lot of them were panned or criticized in, in deeply. And I think it's, it's it, I'm reminded of um, what that investor Benjamin Graham said about the stock market. He said, in the short run, it's a polling machine. How popular is something? How much does it catch with people? In the long run, it's a weighing machine. You know, how good is really the company, the content? And if you apply that to the world of books, it's just not humanly possible to tell when something is written and published what its afterlife will be. Now, that being said, I think that, you know, those books that continue, if you, Stephen mentioned earlier, the miracle of reading, you know, the process that we make sense out of a book. What I always tell my students is think of some books like, you know, Augustine's Confessions. It was written in like, I think, 398 AD. Like That's like, you know, 1600 years ago. And it's still kind of a prototypical memoir you know, about this life-changing experience and someone casting off their former life and embracing the path they wanted, that a book like that makes sense after 1,600 years is just jaw-dropping. And I think that's the way I think about things now is the outlier is the book that continues to make sense over time, that somehow can transcend its immediate cultural context and speak to something in us that, you know, um, is not bound to time. 
Right. Well, The Outlier in some ways is the book that anybody cares about at any point. Um, uh, When my first book was about to be published, uh, I was having lunch. Annie Diller was still teaching down at Wesleyan at the time. So I was having lunch Mm -hmm. with Annie and she's saying, well, how are you feeling about it? I said, well, I'm really nervous. And she said, why? And I said, well, I don't know, because it's like I just feel he's going to come out and everybody's going to say it's like really derivative. And I know that I've really been sort of borrowing a lot from Roy Blunt Jr.'s style. And people are just going to I'm just going to be exposed as a total fraud. And I'm lying awake at night worrying about this and she looked at me and I'm going to have to like cut all the profanity out of this quote <laughs> but she said are you freaking kidding me she goes no one's going to care about your book yeah. no you should be, fall down on your knees and pray that you're exposed as a fraud <laughs> exactly. because that would mean somebody actually knew you'd written a book right. no one is going to know no one is going to care it's not going to make any difference to anybody except you and she was Julia 100% right right yeah. I mean the, if yeah. you're if you're writing books to make a splash I don't know why anybody writes books, really. But if you're writing books to make a splash or to make this huge impact on the world, you're out of your mind. Yeah. And I mean, in a way, that anecdote is the fun version of, to me, what broke me down about Stoner to go back is Mm -hmm. that no one cares. No one cares. You are the tiniest speck of dust in the universe. And depending on where you are in your life and your ambitions, that's either the most painful thing you've ever heard or the most comforting solve that you know, you can mess up, you can <laughs> you can rip off Roy Blunt Jr.'s voice <laughs> and you're okay. But, you know, it's funny because I think writers, of course, do most of the talking in the media about books, but there's so many more readers than writers. And mm-hmm. readers, readers choose, you know, at the end of the day. And writers are just begging people to be readers. That's, that's what we're doing here, right? Well, and, and writers are mostly jealous readers. I mean, that's what it, you, you read something and you say, my God, I want to play poker at the high stakes table. Yeah. Like, Colin, there's one funny story, or I don't know, I think it's funny. It's, I put it in the book anyway, about jo- John Williams himself. And you're talking about, oh, you know, he's the professor down the hall that might be a hero to a reader who's read his books. But, you know, to, to everybody else, he's just a schmo. Well, John Williams himself, when he wrote Stoner, one of the things that's remarkable is that his agent, of course, said, this is totally boring. Nobody's going to be interested in this. And she was right in the short term. And he himself was the kind of guy who had come from poverty. He'd found the academy. He dressed really fancy. He wore ascots. A lot like you, Colin, he wore ascots, okay? (laughs) Just so Mm -hmm. so listeners have a visual of you. Mm. You wear a beautiful silk ascot all the time. And And, and and that kind of— And today, to Julia's great consternation, that's all I'm wearing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, continue. So he was a guy who was not—he wasn't like William Stoner. He created a character who was totally without any ego and this unretiring monastic— uh, academic, but he himself was a guy who was desperate for attention. And and when his books would come out, he would go to the lounge of the University of Denver where he taught, and he would be all dressed up to the nines, and he would wait for other people to come up to him, other professors and faculty members, and say, hey, I saw your novel got published, or I saw that article about one of your books, and they never came up to him. Mm-hmm. He just sat there in his beautiful suit and felt like a failure or as if what he was doing didn't matter. But here's another story that's interesting about John Williams. When he was having that book, uh, when he was writing that book, he was at a low point in his career and he'd written a couple of books previously that I just don't think are even in the same neighborhood in terms of how deeply he reached into a a character's consciousness. And he had somebody, a a student, who was typing up the chapters. And even though his agent was saying to him, this book is never going to sell, he could see that the girl who was typing up 
the chapters, started weeping uh, late in the book as she was typing up the words that he'd written. And I think he knew at that point that he had written something really special. And part of the reason that you know that that Stoner's special is it, it is sort of saying what we've all been saying in different ways, which is, the point of life and the point of literature is not to get the world to pay attention to your life. In the cosmic perspective, we're all leading lives of obscurity. We're alive for this brief flickering span of time and then it's over. And we have this fantasy, especially in America, that if we accomplish our, our, our striving deeds will make us immortal. And it's really a, a narcissistic fantasy. It's not true. The thing that's going to make our lives important is whether we showed up and paid attention in the crucial little private moments where we're really the most alive and the most at risk. And Stoner manages to capture that. He gets a happy ending at the end of that book, as depressing as much of it is. At the end of his life, as he's facing death, he really has this sudden revelation that he knows who he was and that he was paying attention to his life and he can die at, you know, at peace with himself. And for me, having seen my very beautiful, ambitious mother really take to the grave a sense that she didn't achieve enough and didn't do enough, for me it's like the happiest ending in all of literature. It's this wonderful line where he says he, he was thinking about failure again as if it mattered. And it's such a beautiful line to me because I think especially writers and academics and even readers were thinking so much about, are we doing okay? And Stoner is sending this message, if you're paying attention to your life, you're doing okay. All right. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, we'll be back with one more segment. We're talking about books and writers and the experience of, uh, of being spoken to by a book. Let me just pause and say that today's episode was produced by senior producer Betsy Kaplan, who agonized over it and worried about it. I think we can call off the seppuku. This is a good episode. All right. This is good. This is a good conversation we're having. We've got Wolfie on the board, as usual, and Carolyn McCusker, our great intern, is in there also helping things move along. Uh, and we are moving along here with our great panel. Steve Allman, his new book is William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life. Uh, he will be at Real Artways tonight, if you're hearing this on Thursday. Uh, if, if not, then not. Uh, but uh, Thursday, uh, July 25th, 7.30 p.m., an event called Get Stonered, How Our Favorite Novels Help Us Find Ourselves. Julia Pistel is Managing Director at CT Improv. You should go to CT Improv this summer, too. Yeah. And then in the fall, we're so excited about Swedish Mime Mimes. Improv. Swedish yes. Mime Improv? Can't wait. Swedish Mime Improv. Uh, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm there. So, but <laughs> we, we do, you do have a Swedish Mime Improv. Yeah, we're should booking we... them right now. So she told me that, and I said, do they talk at all? Which I then realized was a really stupid question. <laughs> also, Joseph Luzzi, author of the memoir In a Dark Wood, What Dante Taught Me About Grief, Healing, and the Mysteries of Love, uh, and most recently the book My Two Italys, a professor of comparative literature uh, at Bard. He taught Steely Dan everything they know. Um, so, um, so Joseph, you know, one thing that Steve was talking about a while ago was that idea, the, the books that we read, I think he referenced Catcher in the Rye. And I think when we're very young and starting to be really moved and influenced by novels, I think our relationship is a little bit 
artificial or at least our expectations are wrong. You know, we read Catcher in the Rye and we think, oh, yeah, that guy's just like me. He sees things the way I do and I want to be more like him. And I'm going to talk like Holden Caulfield for the next three years until someone kills me. Uh, and they, we kind of ignore the fact he's in a mental hospital at the end of the book. But there's a way in which I think when we're first getting excited about books and we're teenagers, we're adolescents or even pre-adolescents, we think that it really is just like, oh, I'm just going to go try be, to be that person. Uh, and that's, I don't think, really even what the novelist wanted us to do. Yes and no. I mean, in a way, you know, obviously when you're a kid or a teenager, you're, you're growing, you're maturing and you have you think differently than you will when you're older. But I think it's kind of beautiful that you look to a book at that age for like the meaning of life. You know, um, I was my daughter loves my oldest daughter's 11. She loves to read fantasy. I wish she would read other things. But, you know, I've. I said, she's reading and she reads voraciously. My youngest son, my son is four. He likes to read about dinosaurs and he'll read anything about dinosaurs and sharks. And I just think being drawn to books is such a beautiful thing. If if you're looking for a mirror of yourself in Holden Caulfield or someone else as a teenager, I don't think that means, you know, as you age, you may sort of know that you want a different role model, but hopefully that sense of belief and kind of almost religious passion for books stays with you and, and grows into something else. So um, I think it's a good problem to have in a way to, to over-identify with books <laughs> when you're young. Julia, I saw you writing things down over there. Yeah, well, I'm going to make a generalization based on nothing but my own experience. Um, I'm feeling like for girls, for young girls, that over-identification, the breadth of characters and interesting girl characters skews younger. And I would say Matilda, uh, Mary in the Secret Garden, Charlotte from Charlotte's Web, like these people are still inside me. I don't think I ever let them go or extracted them from my personality because when I was seven, eight, nine, there's so many female characters in fiction that you can pick and choose, you know, who to identify with. And of course, when you're becoming a reader at that age, you're reading these books over and over. It's not like you're waiting five years to wistfully pick them back up. You just stop them and start right up again. So I, I know many women who feel like an intense attachment to these characters in children's fiction. Yeah. And, you know, Steve, I think maybe that also gets into that thing that you've been talking about. And you talk about in the book also about narration. There's a way in which when we're young and we, we really bond to a novel, it's in some ways the first time someone's someone really intelligent is saying something to us that we really haven't heard before. You know, I mean, we've been exposed to our parents bossing around, our teachers telling us to do stuff, right. and maybe we've watched some TV and stuff like that. But this is really different. This is a voice coming right into our heads. And, and as you say, when it's a powerful narrator, we, we, we place ourselves in that person's hands in a way we never have before. Yeah, and in fact, we're, we're kind of indoctrinated to do that. I mean, one of the things, I have three kids and who are now 12, 10, and, and 6, and every single one of them has come into reading in the same way with the understanding that there is this miraculous entity, particular to literature and no other art form, which is the narrator, the person who says, once upon a time, there was a, a beautiful princess with a fatal dream or whatever it is. And we get used to that. I think kids understand reading as a form of prayer. I actually think that sounds kind of like uh, pretentious, but that's, that's what happens. They don't sit there and say, oh, I already read that. 
I, I know that story. It's like Julie, Julie was saying, they want to go back to that place. When my daughter started reading the Harry Potter books, and it was actually sort of gender irrelevant, she identified with an exceptional kid who um, didn't feel at home in his family and needed to go to another place, a magical school, where he could build his own family, which is, I think, what every kid kind of goes through as they try to escape from the cauldron of their own particular neurotic family. And she literally read those books. They are in much worse shape than any book you've ever owned, Colin. We literally would have to get her multiple copies <laughs> because she was kind of repeating a liturgy. It's something that is familiar in the human arrangement. You know, it's what we used. To, it's the relationship, frankly, that most people had with the Bible. Those were the stories that they thought about and internalized. And yes, it was a story about Cain and Abel, but it was also about the conflicts you get into with your siblings. Or it was about, you know, David and, and Bathsheba. And it was the story of Gatsby in some way, of doomed love, right? Of this overweening, powerful, erotic and emotional force that kind of overtakes our logic and causes us to try to break the rules and reinvent ourselves. And all this stuff is universal. The reading experience is one of being told a story, and you want somebody to essentially say to you, hey, we're headed for the darkest part of the forest, and I have a beautiful car that's going to that's gonna get us there. It, we might go pretty fast around some of the curves, but we are headed for danger. Why don't you just step inside? That's what it feels like when a narrator is really acting as a guide to the reader. What I see with my students in my own awful fiction is that too many times I'm trying to stuff the reader in the trunk. I'm trying to unconsciously compete with TV and movies, and I sort of immerse us immediately in a scene without really explaining to the reader who, what's at stake and, and who, what world we're entering. And so that's one of the reasons that for me Stoner resonates so deeply with people, that it reiterates that experience that we all have as children. We're, we're so hungry to be told a story. Storytelling is the way that we understand Understand the world. We're storytelling species. And I think when we reconnect with that, whether it's in church with Bible stories or a great novel, it's plugging into something that's really ancient, uh, an ancient need in all human beings. All right. We have to stop there, unfortunately. Sorry. Uh, we've run out of time. This conversation could obviously go on almost as long as a Thomas Mann novel. But, so let me tell you who these guests are. Steve Allman, writer and author of 10 books of fiction and nonfiction, including Against Football and Candy Freak. His latest his book is William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life, and he's going to be at Real Artways tonight, Thursday night, if you're listening on Thursday, the July 25th kind of Thursday, 7.30 for an event titled Get Stonered, How Our Favorite Novels Help Us Find Ourselves. In studio with me is Julia Pistel, freelance writer, comedian, managing director at CT Improv, creator of Syllable Series, host of Literary Disco, a podcast about books and writing. And also joining us is Joseph Luzzi, writer and author of the memoir In a Dark Wood, What Dante Taught Me About Grief, Healing, and the Mysteries of Love. He's the author of two other books, most recently, My Two Italies. He's a professor of comparative literature at Bard. Bard.